If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Y'all know something funny? Stephen skipped a whole section of the worship service just now. Did y'all, did anybody know that? Which I got a great big kick out of coming out of baptism. He'll hear about that for the next few weeks. But we'll fix it in the end. But just to give him a little grief, I thought I'd point that out so that you guys would know what I know, which is that he skipped a whole big section of the service. Hey, we're starting this morning a series of sermons in Proverbs, which I have been anxiously awaiting now for some time. If uh, our last extended series of sermons in Revelation was heady and challenging for you, it does not get any more basic, simple, or practical than the teaching of the book of Proverbs. In addition to that, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the content of Proverbs and the impact it stands to bear in our lives individually. Uh, Proverbs gives me, as your pastor, the occasion to say week by week that God is for you and not against you. That if you'll do what God's word instructs you to do, it will yield the fruit of success in your life, in every area of your life. We might say that the Bible changes our life, and you've experienced this as a believer. Just a basic reading of the Bible and spending time in prayer at the beginning of a day, it changes our outlook, it changes the trajectory of our day. You've experienced that in ways that are difficult to quantify or define, but are unmistakable in your personal experience. Day just goes different when we've spent time in God's word and fellowship of, of prayer. But I, I would get more specific than that even with the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs will change parts of your life you might have otherwise considered to be secular or to be unimportant. Our tendency is to see our lives as spiritual and material and to compartmentalize the various parts of our life. There's our spiritual life over here where we do prayer and devotional life and we attend church and we might share the gospel and participate in mission trips and those kind of things. And then there are these other more secular areas of our life that we might not appreciate are impacted by the gospel as much as those aspects of our life we regard as spiritual. Our work life, our hobbies, our interests, our social interactions, our friendship relationships, maybe even marriage and family, the rearing of, of children. And what Proverbs is doing is to take the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses and to allow that to seep down into the various cracks and crevices of our life until all of our life is consumed by the principles of the gospel that has saved us from our sin. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning what wisdom and discipline are, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving wise instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. A wise man will listen and increase his learning, and a discerning man will obtain guidance for understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, 
Fools despise wisdom and discipline. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We ought to start with the question of what a proverb is. Proverbs is not just the name of a biblical book. It is a certain genre. It is a way of communicating truth. We have proverbs in our culture. Every culture has proverbs. Pithy ways, memorable ways of expressing a certain principle or concept that conveys wisdom. It is a general principle. For example, today's proverb would be Proverbs chapter 17. And the first verse of Proverbs 17 says, Better a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. You know, we find passages in the Bible that say, Pursue peace. As much as is possible, live at peace with all people. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But here we have this memorable, pithy, clever way of expressing the same basic truth. It's stated in such a way as to hang on to us, to stick with greater depth and broader application than just the general principle. But what I want you to note here is that proverbs are proverbs. They are principles. They are not commandments. That may seem a trivial thing. It may even in the ears of some seem an undermining of the teaching of the Bible, but that is not what is intended at all. We talked about this in brief back on Mother's Day when we talked about the Proverbs 31 wife just briefly. The Proverbs 31 wife is a proverbial woman. In other words, Proverbs 31 does not mean that you ladies should endeavor to be everything that Proverbs 31 says the proverbial woman is simultaneously. And all of God's ladies can exhale. Nor does Proverbs 31 teach in a literal sense that every man ought to be looking for a woman as a wife who is doing simultaneously everything that Proverbs 31 describes and all of God's gentlemen exhaled in great relief. The proverbial woman does not exist. And as I like to point out, I don't know who she'd be interested in if she did, but she does not exist. Proverbs are not hard and fast, inviolable, dogmatic commandments. They are observations of principles that in general over time have proven to be true. And the right application in the fear of the Lord will produce fruitfulness and success in your life. One of my favorite examples of this are two Proverbs that come one right after the other. The first says, answer a fool according to his folly. And the next verse says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which of those are true? The answer is, both of those are true. There is no conflict or contradiction. There are two sides of a single truth. Wisdom is required when engaging a foolish person. There are times to disengage, and there are times to engage. Knowing the difference in those times is what the book of Proverbs is all about. Granting the wisdom to know when to do what with the assurance that the application of the principles of God's word will in the end prove to provide fruitfulness 
and success. I'll tell you one of the things that really excites me about preaching this series of sermons. There is propagated from many, many pulpits in Western culture and now being exported into the Eastern Hemisphere in the most harmful of ways, a misrepresentation of the gospel known as the prosperity gospel. And I find this seeping its way into otherwise faithful churches and into the hearts of faithful Christians. The prosperity gospel teaches that if you'll do the right things and say the right things, and perhaps most importantly, give the right amounts of cash, that you will be healthy and you will be wealthy for all of your life. And that could not be further from the truth. In fact, it stands in stark contrast with the ministry and the message of our Savior Jesus. Yesterday, for a few minutes, I fell into a social media rabbit hole. You know, you watch a YouTube video and you get the suggested videos on the side. And the next thing you know, you've wasted an hour of your life. And there was this preacher from Louisiana. And this is what he said rather boastfully. My, my children have never seen me sick, which is a lie. He's a false teacher and a liar. <laughs> and then he said, then he said, I live in the largest house in the state of Louisiana, which I'm inclined to think is a lie. But given his cleverness in distancing his people from their money, he may be telling the truth at that point. He boasted that his home was 40,000 square feet, that he hadn't been sick within the span of his children's life. Well, I don't believe most of that, but if it is accidentally true, it should not be taken as an indication of any great favor on his life. In fact, it reminded me of the words of Hebrews 12, 6, that he disciplines whom he loves, and it may prove to be verifiable evidence of God's great distance from that man's life. And I would remind you that Jesus said of himself, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes of the ground have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It may not mean for us, following the principles of God's word may not mean for us experiencing success according to the standard of Hollywood. But I will not concede nor shrink back from saying emphatically that if you will do what God's word has instructed you would do, you will enjoy fruitfulness and success according to the standards of heaven. We oughtn't be intimidated at saying that. We ought to celebrate that. We ought to be aware of that. I don't think there's a tremendous amount of awareness of that. That doing what God's word says to do creates for us some measure of social fruitfulness, vocational fruitfulness, financial fruitfulness, investment fruitfulness. There is fruitfulness that comes in every sphere of our life from simply honoring the command, the precepts, and the principles of God's holy word. And we oughtn't be intimidated at saying that or concede the ability to say that because some huckster has manipulated the gospel and misrepresented the goodness of our God. So Proverbs gives me the chance to say that on a recurring basis. 
and I delight to do so. We're given the title of the book of Proverbs in verse 1. It simply reads, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. We know Solomon from the Old Testament. We read the stories of Solomon's life and leadership in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Solomon was the son of David in the most literal of senses. He was the son that took the throne of Israel after the death of his father, David. And there's this moment in the Old Testament where Solomon has this visionary dream with God. And he expresses his inability to do what he has at this juncture been called upon to do. He acknowledges that the people under his charge are not his people. They are God's people. And he requests that God will give him the wisdom and the insight to lead them faithfully. And in response to Solomon's humility, the acknowledgement that he could not do the work to which God had called him, and his request for wisdom, God was pleased to grant it. Solomon is given this God-given gift of wisdom, this ability to make judgment, to exercise discernment, and to lead the people of God in ways that we're still discussing today. For most of Israel's history, she was, as a nation, this fledgling little nation at the crossroads of civilization. But during Solomon's reign, the borders of Israel were broadened more broadly than ever in her history. Even until this day, the borders, the boundaries of Israel were broader in Solomon's day than they are this very day. The country enjoyed great economic success, political influence. Most of the time, Israel was sort of this outlier nation hoping that a neighboring nation, a larger, more powerful nation, did not invade and take away what they enjoyed. But for the first time in her history, diplomats were sent from other nations, kings and queens and princes were sent to Israel to sit at the feet of Solomon and to glean from this God-given gift of wisdom he enjoyed. Solomon was the wisest king in Israel's history. The wisest man in all of the Old Testament. And some historians regard Solomon as the, among the wisest men in all of human history. That wisdom proved successful. It proved fruitful for Israel over the duration of his life and leadership. The financial prosperity enjoyed within Israel was difficult. It's difficult for us to appreciate its magnitude. Modern economists have said that it would require more than $2 billion to build the temple Solomon constructed for the worship of God now nearly 3,000 years ago. $2 billion with a B dollars. And so Solomon's wisdom is collected and it's passed down from generation to generation. Solomon is given credit for all of the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. But along the way, you'll find that other authors are mentioned. You have King Lemuel, his mother. You have Angar in one particular section. But those seem to be recipients of the school of Solomon's wisdom being handed down generation by generation, at least until the time of Hezekiah. 
Proverbs has given us the ability to look into this God-given wisdom and to glean from the experiences of Solomon and those who would come after. Verses 2 through 4 give us the purpose for Proverbs. What purpose do the Proverbs serve for us? Verse 2 says, They're for learning what wisdom and discipline are, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving wise instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. They give us general principles that help us to produce a fruitful and wise life. In short, we might say that Proverbs are intended to help us make good choices. They make us wise. I mentioned a moment ago that Proverbs helps us to get gospel principle into every part of our life, not to compartmentalize secular and sacred, but to get gospel and gospel application into every part of our life. Let me run a brief list of the kind of topics that are covered in detail in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs deals at length with work ethic. It is not coincidental that in a day and age when employers are bemoaning the fact that you can't find anyone to work or anyone who knows how to work or anyone who is willing to work, that we are simultaneously distancing ourselves as a society from the foundations of Christian influence. Book of Proverbs deals with this issue. Proverbs deals with social life, how you interact with people, how you speak to people, how you engage with people. It is not coincidental that at a time when people don't seem to have the ability to communicate apart from a misspelled text message, that we are distancing ourselves as a society from the influence of Christian foundations. The book of Proverbs deals at length with how we conduct ourselves in the business world. How you manage your business should be influenced by the message of the gospel that has saved your soul from sin. Proverbs helps us to understand how this unfolds. Our financial life more broadly is addressed by the book of Proverbs. Even investing is addressed by the book of Proverbs. Marriage and family and how we rear our children. All of life is addressed in some way by the basic principles granted to us in the book of Proverbs. So how does Proverbs help us to make these choices? Learning what wisdom and discipline are, understanding and insightful sayings. How are these things conveyed in a helpful, practical way? Recently, I've gotten a couple of questions, one of these on an ongoing basis that I think helps to illustrate the way Proverbs operates in our life. I didn't realize when I came to be the pastor of this church how much hiring people would be a part of my responsibility as your pastor just a few short years ago. If you have even nominal turnover in your staff and, and, and the responsibilities of hiring interns and church planners, not to mention the day school hiring responsibilities, this is just, a, it's always in front of me, hiring, hiring, hiring. Someone asked the other day, someone who'd been here and is now serving in another church context, what that looks like, what are some basic principles for that? And there, there, there are three for me. And Proverbs is the driving force behind these principles. And it's illustrative of the way Proverbs works in our heart. 
One, I want to know that he or she loves Jesus with all of their heart. And not just in some kind of superficial way, not just a way that affirms the basic philosophy and methodology of our ministries here, not just in terms of participating in church and maybe sharing the gospel from time to time, but a warm-hearted devotion to Jesus that makes its way into every part of their life. Every part of their life is impacted by the gospel that has saved them from their sin. I want to know one that they love Jesus. Now, you can draw that principle from a number of different books in the Bible. The basic message of the Bible is just that. But the latter two are especially proverbial in nature. The second thing I'm looking for, I want to know that this person has a good work ethic. That they know how to show up at the beginning of the day and look at the circumstances before them and take the initiative in addressing whatever need might arise without being goaded by a supervisor or superior. Taking initiative. One of the great detriments of living in this hyper-specialized culture in which we live is that virtually everyone knows how to do a job and no one knows how to work. There's no initiative. There's no self-starting ability. I want to know that a body has that skill in order to hire them into any position, regardless of what the position is. And here's the third thing. Again, especially proverbs in nature. I don't know if others use this terminology or not, but I like the phrase. I want to know that they have good social intellect. In other words, they know how to create peace in the throes of conflict. They know how to speak diplomatically to a disgruntled person. They know how to interact with people in general. Now think about this. This is a Proverbs thing. You want to know where you learn good social IQ? You learn it from the book of Proverbs, the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit, enlivening the words of this book, enabling us to interact with those around us in peaceable, meaningful ways, in ways that convey the great care and concern that we have as a body for a lost and dying world around us and for brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, here's the deal. You know people who are born again, and they love Jesus, and they get on your nerves every time they get around you. They're aggravating, they're brash, they're unnecessarily harsh. You duck into bathrooms and closets to avoid any interaction with them. You hate to see them coming. You have neighbors that you keep the lights dim so they won't know you're home. These people exist in your life. And the, the problem is the absence of the very kind of principles that we find in the book of wisdom that is the book of Proverbs. Now, if you're struggling socially, if you're just awkward socially, Proverbs is the book for you. We find that here. Verse 2 again says, this book is for learning what wisdom and discipline are. Now, there's a long list of terms here. They're almost synonymous with the concepts of wisdom and discipline. There's a little nuance, nuance that we don't have time to unpack this morning. But what I want to note is the way wisdom, which we would regard as this abstract conceptual thing, wisdom, the kind of thing that we hold in our head, is coupled together with discipline, the kind of stuff we do with our hands. And Proverbs does that again and again and again and again. 
Proverbs is unconcerned with your SAT, your ACT, or your IQ score. Proverbs is intensely concerned with the way you make application of the principles that you've come to know or to observe. We fight this in church culture. We even speak of people who love God or close to God or are mature in the faith by what they know. Oh, he, 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 he knows the Bible. I, I, I want you to understand some of the worst people I have ever known knew more about the Bible than most anyone else I, I've, I've ever known. In our, in our neighborhood where I grew up, there was this guy, and I won't mention his name, but he's in prison now for manufacturing methamphetamines and murder. And any time his name would come up, usually in the context of, of drugs, someone would come through the neighborhood. It was not a great neighborhood. And they want to know who had what. Well, he's got it down there. You know, he knows the Bible. And, I'm, and that, that is not a stretch or a joke. Like the guy down there that knows the Bible has the methamphetamines. If, if what you know in your head is not impacting what you do in your life, not only do I say, but the book of Proverbs says it does not matter. It does not matter. Here, wisdom and discipline are coupled together. Repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs, this idea of knowledge and understanding is coupled together. Knowledge is what you know in your head. Understanding is what you do with your hands. Now, I'm not telling you ought to be brain dead. I'm not telling you ought not pursue insight and education. But I am saying to you at some point, what we know of God, what we know of righteousness, what we know of goodness, and even what we know of evil has to make its way from our head down to our heart, having bare on the way we live our lives. Proverbs really presses at that issue. The book is for understanding insightful sayings, receiving wise instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man, helping us to make good choices. These proverbs help us to be successful without compromising righteousness, justice, or our integrity. Verses 5 and 6, we get a little bit of insight into how these work. A wise man will listen and increase his learning, and a discerning man will obtain guidance for understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. We've already addressed this a little bit with the whole concept of, of hiring, but but in addition to that, we, we, could, we could throw lots of gray area issues in, into the pile of difficult decisions to make. How do I know what God's will is for me? Young people from time to time will say, should I marry him? Should I marry her? How do I make this decision? I like to say in jest, gentlemen, unless her name is Grace, Mercy, or Peter, you're not going to find book, chapter, or verse that says I ought to marry that individual. You're going to have to take that decision and you're going to have to filter that through the grid of God's wisdom, much of which is found in the book of Proverbs, in order to come to a righteous outcome. When I came to be your pastor a few years ago, making that decision, I could not cite you book, chapter, and verse, way, go to Longview Point and be their pastor. 
I could not turn to the second book of opinions, chapter 3, verse 16, to find a verse that said, go to her Nando. But I could evaluate the choice before me on the basis of the principles of God's word. Am I, am I driven by a desire to see the kingdom expanded? Do you feel as though you have a set of gifts and abilities that can contribute to the strength and well-being of that body? Is there any self-interest that's driving your desire for that position? Is pride or egotism a part of this equation? Or is there a selfless want for kingdom expansion and the glory of God that is the motivating factor in this choice? Do you see what I mean? Most of the decisions that we make in life are not choosing the good versus the bad. They're choosing the better over the good or the best over the better. And those decisions must be made by running them through the filter of the wisdom of God's word. These are the kind of filters, the kind of principles the book of Proverbs is providing us with. A wise man will listen and increase his learning, and a discerning man will obtain guidance. You'll find in this book the various ways to make good, healthy, wholesome decisions without crashing and burning in life. I'll tell you what else Proverbs does. Proverbs helps us to take a step back and to see these complex decisions apart from the haze of our personal involvement. It is so hard in the heat of the moment or behind the haze of direct participation to make good, healthy decisions, right? That's a, that's a really challenging thing to do. In, unless you are really spiritually perceptive, the likelihood is it takes you longer to see a bad decision that you make than it does for you to see a bad decision someone else is making. We're just that way. That's the product of sin in our life. Think about David, the father of Solomon. David had involved himself in adultery with Bathsheba, even a murderous conspiracy to cover it up. But it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came to him with what? A parable or a proverb that David was finally able to see with the haze of direct involvement now cleared. He was able to see that just as Nathan had said, he was the man. Proverbs helps us to do that. There, there is this ongoing effort on the part of Solomon here to put together a teaching that can be passed down from father to son, mother to daughter, parents to children, that can help them to guard against the same mistakes that they might have made in their personal experience. In fact, I am convinced that what Solomon intends to do in the book of Proverbs is to provide a curriculum for fulfilling the requirements of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember that passage? In Deuteronomy 6, God says, Moses instructing the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And very specific instructions are given to the people of Israel as to how they're to ensure the handing down of this covenant the message of their exodus and the goodness of their God from one generation to the next. When you're coming and going, rising up and sitting down, walking along the road, speak of the principles of God's word, teach your children and your grandchildren of what God has done for you. 
so that this covenant relationship between God and Israel will never be forgotten. The book of Proverbs is on some level a curriculum for mamas and daddies and grandparents, for invested older people to ensure that younger generations do not lose sight or remembrance of what God has done for them, to assist those younger, that they not make the mistakes that they themselves have made. I think, I think our church is an exception to the rule when it comes to harmony among the older generation and the younger, but that is not the case uniformly in churches. In fact, I have observed a great deal of friction and tension. An older generation who regard themselves as the foundation layers, the financier of most things church, who sorted some things out in the wisdom of old age, and who have their heads on straight and are doing much of what needs to be done in, in the right way. And then there's this fire-breathing younger generation who with hair on fire is ready to charge the gates of hell with little concern or care for what the fallout for that might be, very little calculation or counting of the cost. We need one another as generations, by the way. This older generation could, could use a little bit of hair on fire, sharing of the message of the gospel. And this younger generation for sure needs the wisdom of an older generation who's navigated a few decades and who happened to know a little bit. You don't get to be old being a fool. There's a proverb. Those of you who've lived a little while are in a position to pass down the mistakes, the experiences, the lessons that you've learned to a younger generation that affords them the ability to bypass some of those grave mistakes along the way. Not only does Proverbs exhort that kind of relationship between young and old, we are, in addition to that, given the ability to learn not only from those who've come before us and are physically present, but to learn from those who've come before us and are physically absent. Solomon, David, the wise men of Hezekiah's day and the wisdom of King Lemuel's court and the wisdom of Angar and the wisdom of our Lord and to see evidence in their life of the fruit of success and righteousness produced when observing the commandments of God's word. This is the way the Proverbs are intended to function or to operate. Now look at verse 7. The Bible says here, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. In the book of Proverbs, there are just two kinds of people. There are wise people and there are fools. The title of the sermon series is Walking in Wisdom, but that was not the first iteration of the sermon series title. The, the first title, which I thought would probably be a little harsh, was Don't Be an Idiot. <laughs> I didn't know if y'all were ready for that. And then softened that a bit to Don't Do Dumb Stuff. I thought that sort of communicates the message. But I thought a more positive outlook on the message of Proverbs was perhaps more appropriate, walking in wisdom. There are just those two categories of people. And the Bible says here that the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
That phrase, fear of the Lord, is a difficult concept. It's a difficult thing to quantify or to define. New believers, new students of the Bible often recoil at the concept of fearing the Lord. I thought that we were supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, that we were to be drawn to him with this warm-hearted affection. But in my mind's eye, when I think about fearing the Lord, I have in my mind this image of withdrawing, recoiling in fear and in dread. Pastor, what is intended by fear the Lord? It is, again, a difficult thing to define, but if I could do so by illustration, this might be helpful. If you have children who are old enough to be active socially, if they can function apart from your direct oversight, which doesn't have to be that old. Yesterday, our four-year-old informed us that he didn't need us to go with him, that he just needed me to drop him off at Chuck E. Cheese for the birthday party and that his mother would pick him up after it was over. Now, it was at the same time as a football game, so I considered it. But we thought it might not be wise. But even a four-year-old playing with their friends in a group on the playground, but especially with older kids, if you go to the school and visit them or at the game or you're with them in some setting where their peers are around, you can observe them from some distance and you can see the countenance of liberty, the liberty that comes with freedom from the direct supervision of their parents. Now, my kids love me, at least I think they do. And, and, and we're not in that chapter of life where they begrudge my presence. I think they sort of like me to be around, believe it or not. But when I enter into that setting, the countenance changes. The tone can change. And although I don't have the expectation that they're doing things behind my back that they're not necessarily supposed to do, that sense of unbridled freedom goes away. And there's an awareness, a respect for the reality that their father is present. It's not that they don't love me. I think they do. But they respect the fact that I'm providing oversight now in that setting. To fear the Lord is no more than to be aware of the presence of God over all of our life. It doesn't mean that we want him to be distant, that we dread his presence, that we don't have a deep and abiding affection for him. It means that we respect him. And we're keenly aware of his direct lordship and oversight over every area of our life. The fear of the Lord, this awareness of God's presence over all of our life is said to be the root, the fountain, the foundation of all wisdom, knowledge, and education. We have managed in our society to both overstate and understate the importance of education simultaneously. You can go back as far as President Truman in the aftermath of World War II and hear statements from governmental leaders in the West like, education is our greatest weapon against the evil forces of this world. And for 70 or so years, that has been the mantra of our federal government. In some ways, we have overstated education. 
and that we have celebrated the collection of information as the answer to all our perils. Everything can be fixed by education. But let's process that for just a moment. I can remember being a fifth grade boy and coming home with a yellow slip for my parents to sign off on in order for me to participate in a sex education course in my elementary school. I can remember there being some back and forth about that and ultimately deciding that I should be a participant in that class in the fifth grade. After all, it got my daddy off the hook for having to have that conversation. In hindsight, I don't blame him at all. And, and in the years since that, we have multiplied and, and amplified teaching in sex education many times over, such that those conversations which barely registered when I was a fifth grade student, the dark ages of the 1990s, are, are now major points of contention. There has never been a society that invested more and gave more attention to education with regards to sex than the, than the present generation. And yet, at the same time, there has never been more confusion with regards to the nature of sex, whether we're talking in terms of sexual intimacy or sexual gender, than exists at the present hour. How could this be? We say things in our culture that capture the essence of what's being communicated in verse 7. We say things like this. He's too smart for his own good. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. You can't be too smart for your own good. But what we're capturing there colloquially is the idea that this person has now been steeped in an educational process that is removed from the root, from the foundation, from the fountain of all wisdom. Therefore, education has become not only unproductive, but in reality, detrimental to the individuals who are involved. The fear of the Lord is the foundation for, it is the basis of all wisdom and insight. In other words, in our gaining and gathering of information, we are to remain keenly aware of the vigilant oversight of our God over every aspect of our life in so much as we are aware what you can gather, what you can gain and make application of in your life is fruitful and beneficial. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in that sense, Proverbs seeks to educate the follower of Jesus that we know what to do in a given scenario to make the right decision, to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to pursue successfulness in life without compromising our integrity along the way. There are gospel implications in the book of Proverbs. In, in other words, we find, we find arrows pointing us to the gospel in the book of, of Proverbs. And we're called as believers to give a defense once and for all for the message of the gospel that has saved us from our sin. Can I tell you, I believe one of the most powerful apologetics for the truth of God's word is the implementation of the principles of God's word in our life and the fruit it bears. If you're here today as a skeptic, I dare you, for the remainder of the month of September, 
You read one chapter of Proverbs a day and do what God's word requires of you to do. And if your life doesn't take a uniquely righteous, Godward, fruitful, successful trajectory over the next two weeks, dismiss it out of hands. I, I dare you, I challenge you to do what God's word says and see if it won't make a difference in your day-to-day -day life. One of the most powerful apologetics for the wisdom and truthfulness of God's word. Over the course of the next few weeks, especially in chapters eight and nine, we're introduced to this lady wisdom. It's a personification of God's wisdom. It may feel a little strange that it's a female persona, but it is a persona for the wisdom of God nonetheless. And then what we find is that the very terminology used to express the keen wisdom and insight of our God is later in the New Testament applied to Jesus. Wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs as this lady wisdom, but wisdom is personified in human history in the person of Jesus, who God sends to bear our sin on the cross, who secures our victory over death and hell and the grave and his resurrection from the tomb. And in wisdom matched with gentleness and compassion, beckons that all who would believe would come. Do you know Jesus? Have you tapped the wisdom of heaven? Have you, have you come to a place of acknowledging not only your sinfulness, but your inability to navigate the road that lies ahead? Jesus is the source of all wisdom and insight. That difficult decision that, that lies ahead, the answers are found in Jesus. That unfulfilled promise, the answers are found in Jesus. Your confusion and lack of clarity about what next, what's the next step, the answers are to be found in Jesus. He is wisdom personified. Try him and find him faithful. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word for these moments to spend together reflecting on the wisdom of your word, your unmatched wisdom as the counselor of all of heaven. God, I pray that we would feel the full force of Proverbs and its teaching. Your interest, not just in what we regard as the sacred areas of our life, but in all of our life. Help us to be a people who have been impacted and have been saturated by the influence of the gospel. Help us to know and love and treasure your son, Jesus, to live in light of his presence over all of our life. God, forgive us where we come short of this standard. Make us fruitful and faithful. May heaven regard our meager offering as successful. We ask it in Jesus' name.